0: that you're born an Italian, if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italian, and your life
1: will be great.
2: Hello there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and we have a very special episode lined up today. I am alone in the interviewer's chair this afternoon because uh, we have a topic that is both timely and important and... A bit more newsworthy, I guess, than our normal explorations of the Italian-American psychology because today we want to talk about the ongoing crisis in the Ukraine and our special guest is coming to us from Palermo, Sicily uh, and we're going to get a chance to look into not only what's going on here in the world that is obviously uh, overwhelming both the news cycle and the popular consciousness and a topic that could certainly use some explanation for many of us in the audience. And uh, we're also going to get an opportunity to discuss what the relationship between Italy and Ukraine is, what the relationship between Italy and Russia is, and what the current situation in Italy vis-a-vis this continuously escalating conflict looks like. Like I say, I'm going to take this one solo, but of course I always have, from the other side of the glass, my right hand and our associate producer, Miss Stephanie Longo. So, Stephanie... Good to get to spend an early morning together. How are you?
1: I'm good. How about you? You recovered from San Giuseppe.
2: Yes, we are hot (laughs) on the heels of uh, the Festa di San Giuseppe this weekend. I was with Rosella uh, filming for Greetings in New Orleans. That was quite a, it's a busy weekend. I got to tell you that's, I mean, it's for me, you know, I always say, and I really believe it's the best, most joyous Italian-American weekend of the year, but it's exhausting because it's a lot of work.
1: Seriously, I did my very first San Giuseppe party at my house. Um, my boyfriend's Irish-American, so he never celebrated St. Joseph's Day, never did anything. So I decided I was going to go all out for this. Good. So the house was decorated. It was lit up. I posted some pictures in the new neighborhood of it, um, all green, white, red, every place. I made zepole, Um made a nice dinner. He was great though. He was a good sport. He came over all dressed in red because I told him you should be wearing red for this. So that's right. we had a wonderful, wonderful time. And I think that he likes the Italian stuff. So that's good.
2: I mean, I, with all due respect to our Irish uh, friends <laughs> out there, you know, I think at least the idea of this wonderful pastry and the St. Joseph's altars and the pasta with sardines or pasta con le sardine, you know, when you eat like that, on a holiday. It's hard to compare St. Patrick's day. I think, uh, you know, I'm sure it's a lovely I agree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, don't forget where I'm from is the third largest St. Patrick's day celebration in the United States. Wow. So I walked into an Irish bar on St. Patrick's day just to pick up takeout and it took two hours just to get takeout. It was crazy. You were walking through a wall of people. They were all drinking and having a great time. I think they were really enjoying the festivities, but I think there's something different about going out to a bar, celebrating with your friends, having a nice drink, and sitting down at the family table and having a nice meal, making these traditional pastries, and just having a really nice conversation and sipping on a glass of wine and just enjoying each other's company. It was Two different flavors, I guess, for the celebration. St. Patrick's Day to me is this explosion of people and happiness and excitement. And St. Joseph's Day has that happiness and excitement to it. But there's also that familial atmosphere where you just feel like it's a warm hug in terms of a celebration. I I love St. Joseph's Day.
2: Yeah, you know, the altars, I mean, especially going down to New Orleans, because it's such a Sicilian city every Business, every restaurant, every home, every parish, they have these magnificent St. Joseph altars, and you know people still travel around to each other's homes or to the businesses and churches, and they contribute to the altars. They share meals together. I mean, it's just so uh, such a beautiful tradition that's been kept. I've always found it very charming that a lot of Italian American families I know, the one time a year they try to like quote unquote eat Irish is St. Patrick's Day, and you know we kind of take on. Uh, a patina for the day, but it's just so nice to be able to go down there where everybody in the city knows St. Joseph's Day as well as they know St. Patrick's Day. Although we did find one couple in the parade, I guess they were from out of town, and they got the weekends wrong. So we went and everybody's setting up and everybody's in red and or and or their tuxedos and, you know, it's just this sea of red and um, there's this couple in glaringly green outfit. The gentleman is wearing a green suit, all shamrocks. And I turned to him and I said, you know, are you here representing... An Irish American group, you're an honorary envoy, or and he said, No, we just got the weekend wrong. So he and his wife, they just marched with us in the parade like nothing was wrong, and you know, everybody kind <laughs> of assumed that they were uh, some sort of representation from an Irish club.
1: But I get that, yeah, I do because so. March 10th was supposed to be Scranton St. Patrick's Day Parade, and we had a nasty, horrible snowstorm that day. It was terrible. So they had to cancel it. So they rescheduled it to March 19th. And I'm thinking, oh, God, then now there's going to be that competition with St. Joseph's Day. But it was really nice. Everybody was just, you know, it was a sea of green. But you could also see a little bit of peppering in of red, which growing up Italian, you were always told don't wear red on St. Patrick's Day because that's an insult to the Irish and you never want to insult another ethnicity like that. But I think there were people that were basically going from the St. Patrick's Day parade that were Italian to their St. Joseph's Day celebration.
2: Probably true. Yeah. So
1: what are you going to do? It's
2: quite an overlap.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a strange day, but I think it all pulled off and it was beautiful. It's nice to celebrate two beautiful heritages right at once like that. It's not nice when you're trying to decorate, when you're ripping down the St. Patrick's Day decorations as fast as possible to get the St. Joseph's Day stuff up. You're yeah, always going to miss something.
2: You're in, you're in the... Uh, ecumenical school around those for me i grew up in an irish town Uh, there was me and my best friend who was lebanese and everybody else i think was irish and he and i always agreed to wear black because it was dressed down day you know for saint patrick's day in catholic school and we went to saint patrick's school saint patrick's church it was you might as well have been in ireland and so we always sort of had a silent protest and wore black uh, so i was was never so good with the outreach but you're you're much nicer person than me but needless to say It's wonderful to bring these traditions over and where so much of our outwardly expressed faith and so much of our culture, I mean, you know, for St. Joseph's Day, obviously so much of Southern Italy celebrates it, but really the the, the heart of the celebrations here in the U.S. is in the Sicilian-American community. And it leads me to our very special guest today who is in Sicily coming to us from Palermo. and. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank him for taking the time to be with us. He is His Eminence Archbishop Lorenzo Casati. He is the Metropolitan of the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church Abroad, in full communion with the Ukrainian Apostolic Orthodox Church. He is the Archbishop of Palermo and all of Italy. So, Your Eminence, thank you very much for being here today. Thank
0: you for having me, John and Stephanie. It's a, a great pleasure to meet both of you.
2: Well, we're really happy to have you, and uh, like we said in the introduction, it's such an important topic and one that, frankly, I think leads to a lot of confusion for people because uh, as much as we've seen a great outpouring of affection and concern for Ukraine, it is, I think, a very foreign place still in many minds in, in America, and uh, just simply beginning with the idea of the faith of this uh, this vast country in Ukraine, because I think many of us perhaps have encountered in ethnic communities around the U.S., Ukrainian Catholics or Ukrainian Orthodox. Can, can you explain, first and foremost, what is the Ukrainian autocephalous Orthodox Church abroad? How does it relate? And what portion of Ukraine is Orthodox versus Catholic and other, other faiths?
0: Well, let's start with uh, Ukraine as a country. The majority of people are uh, Orthodox. And Orthodoxy in Ukraine, since the fall of the Soviet Union 31 years ago, it, uh, the church there is actually divided into three different jurisdictions. There's the uh, Autonomous Church, which is under the Moscow Patriarchate. There's the former Patriarchal Church, which is now called uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church. It's under Constantinople, I should say, you know, recognized by Constantinople. Then there's our church. Ukrainian it used to be called the Ukraine autocephalous Orthodox Church it's now called the Ukrainian Apostolic Orthodox Church and we're not uh, either under Moscow or under Constantinople our metropolitan uh, Stefan and our Synod of Bishops uh, maintains that the church in Ukraine has been in existence for uh, over a thousand years and does not need to be recognized either by Moscow or Constantinople and quite frankly, There are political issues, as you can imagine, especially now with what's going on, involved in that. We want to stay out of that sort of uh, political, politically charged uh, atmosphere, condemnations from Moscow, recognition, why one church or the other just doesn't interest us. We're the smallest church, but a very active one. We have several bishops in Ukraine, our metropolitan Stefan of uh, Kiev is... I would say all my life, uh, the the holiest person I've ever met, incredibly holy, a very intelligent person, a former uh, metallurgical engineer, well-educated, speaks several languages. Um, He's quite old and and not in very good health, but uh, uh, a person that that just commands respect automatically. The church that I am uh, presiding bishop of is the church abroad, And we have churches in uh, Italy, Spain, the U.S. and Canada. Uh, So uh, I have bishops in uh, two bishops in Australia. Excuse me. We also have a representative church in Greece. We have a bishop there and um, we will soon have a bishop in Spain. So my job is to coordinate our synod, but we are in full communion with the synod in Ukraine. In fact, I was there three years ago for the bishops meeting when uh, any thought of Russian uh, aggression was um, far from anyone's mind. Kiev is a beautiful city and uh, I'm sorry to see what's happening to it. Uh, Most Ukrainians are Orthodox. Uh, Some are Byzantine Rite Catholics whose ancestors were Orthodox and for political reasons switched their allegiance to Rome in the 16th and early 17th centuries. There are Roman Catholics of Latin Rite. There are Protestants. There are some Jews and Muslims, and then there are a number of people who don't have any uh, faith affiliation at all. Of course, one can expect that after 70 years of Soviet domination. The situation in Ukraine right now is one of great confusion. Uh, People are being killed, Uh, hospitals, schools, churches, orphanages, monasteries, Uh, Today, a shopping mall has been bombed and and destroyed. More than 3 million people have fled the country. Most have gone to Poland, but also in the surrounding countries, and some have come here to Italy.
2: I want to talk about those who are in Italy um, in just a minute, but before we begin dissecting as much as we can both the current situation and its relationship to Italy, I'm sure our audience notices your accent is much closer to mine than it is to either a heavily Ukrainian or Italian one. You are an Italian-American by birth. Can yes, so I'm not Ukrainian know? at all.
0: <laughs> it's, it's our church affiliation. Yes, I'm Italian-American. I was born in New York City. I was born in Brooklyn.
2: As, as was I. we're in Brooklyn? Uh, Bensonhurst. Well, actually, I was born in Bay Ridge,
0: but we lived in, my family lived in Bensonhurst.
2: And how did you end up in in Italy as part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Well, I was Orthodox
0: long before I moved here, but uh, I came here on a visit, and uh, I was asked by some Orthodox priests if I would consider coming here and uh, helping out with missionary work. And uh, I didn't really plan to be here for a long time. Uh, I came to Palermo to assist a priest who had to leave for a few months on a teaching assignment, and then I ended up staying. Uh, It's a rather long story, but uh, I was consecrated bishop in 1996 and elected uh, Metropolitan by our Senate of Bishops in uh, 2015. I came to Palermo to assist that priest, but uh, my original intention was to go to the city that my family comes from, but I ended up staying here and uh, ministering here. So I ended up staying in Palermo, even though my family is not Sicilian. Uh, My father's family came from Oduno, province of Bari. My mother's family came from uh, Catanzaro in Calabria. So uh, it's always, we say, we're always Southern Italians, all of us, whether we're Sicilian, Calabresi, Pugliesi, wherever we're from in the South, we're we're all Southern Italians at the end of it all.
2: Very much true. if we could only convince more southern Italians to understand that uh, the similarities outweigh the differences, I think it'd be a much more productive relationship between regions. But all
0: well, the similarities are quite are quite a few. I mean, we have similar cuisines, um, We share many uh, foods, we share many customs and traditions. The dialects, which are actually not dialects, they're languages, but that's another story, uh, are similar. Most of them are similar. And our, our culture, our way of thinking, our uh, uh, approach to life is, is is often quite different from that of northern Italy. It sure is. At the end, we're all Italians and we share a lot. But uh, southern Italians and northern Italians have, have certain differences in terms of culture and outlook.
2: And I think a part of that, which is appropriate to the conversation about orthodoxy, in uh, in particularly in the south of Italy or in Italy in general, you know, the Orthodox Church uh, and the Byzantine political footprint lasted much longer in the south than anywhere else. I mean, I guess Ravenna and other other parts up north as well. But, you know, th- there was significant populations of Sicily and southern Italy that were orthodox long into the history of the peninsula. What is the situation today in terms of an, an orthodox presence? Uh,
0: well, let's go back a little bit in history. Southern Italy and Sicily were thoroughly orthodox. When the Arabs came to Sicily in the ninth century, they brought Islam and there were some Jewish communities, but uh, Islam remained primarily an Arab phenomenon here. It was the ruling classes, religion. Um, they basically left Orthodox Christians alone. There were some, uh, there were some persecutions, but uh, the people were thoroughly Orthodox. And here in Sicily, uh, most people, and then well, all of southern Italy, especially Calabria, Puglia, and Sicily, people spoke Greek. Some some communities spoke uh, spoke the Vulgus, the, the descendant uh, language of Latin, which later became Italian, developed into Italian. But uh, the the population was rather thoroughly Orthodox. So there were monasteries all over. When the Normans invaded in uh, uh, in the late 11th century, they came here with papal blessing because uh, the Pope wanted to uh, subject uh, all of southern Italy and Sicily to papal authority and and also get rid of some contentious Lombards and Arabs along the way. When the Normans arrived in Palermo, they conquered Palermo in 1071, they found 20 Orthodox churches in this city, no Latin churches at all, 20 Orthodox churches and plus many mosques and, and some synagogues. Uh, what happened was that over a period of uh, uh, assimilation the Normans came here speaking, of course, Norman French, and uh, they brought in a certain Latin influence. They brought in uh, Roman Catholic uh, clergy from northern Italy, and from France and even from England, who took the place as, as Orthodox priests and bishops died off. They took their place and the people were slowly brought into the into the Roman church. Some communities remained Orthodox, uh, especially in Calabria, in uh, Puglia, Basilicata, and uh, Sicily. But in the 16th century, the Pope at that time sent a uh, cardinal here to uh, encourage the Orthodox communities to transfer their allegiance to him. And so these communities still exist, and they're known as Byzantine Rite Catholics. They are Roman Catholic in faith, but they follow the rites and practices of the Orthodox Church, and they, and they have a married clergy as well. That would surprise some people to know that there are married Roman Catholic priests, but uh, they are Byzantine rite. Even here in Palermo, there's one, I believe, and there are others in uh, various churches scattered throughout the South.
2: I've spent a lot of time in the Byzantine rite churches in the South of Italy, and uh, one of my favorite places to go in and- Maturana in Palermo, a magnificent uh, Italo-Albanian church yes. known around the world for what is the most important representation of Roger the Second, the first king of uh, United Kingdom of Sicily. It's a fantastic piece of artwork and in a, in a beautiful church and a beautiful liturgy and a wonderful community there. Yes, it is. Uh, the, the churches that are, let's say, indigenous Orthodox, like the Italo-Albanians, what about the Ukrainian Orthodoxy in, in Italy today. What, what's representation? Well, uh, let's
0: make let's clarify something first. The the Martorana in Palermo was founded by um, Admiral George of Antioch, who was the prime minister uh, in, in uh, the 12th century. But it was founded for the local um, Greek speaking Orthodox community. Albanians came here in the 1400s, fleeing from the Turkish invasion. And they went to, uh, they primarily went to communities throughout southern Italy and Sicily where they found uh, their Orthodox brethren and united uh, with those communities which adopted the Albanian language. And uh, church services continued to be celebrated in Greek for a while and then Greek and Albanian and also in more recent years in Italian. Uh, so the Albanian influence became predominant in these communities. So, uh, if you go to Piana degli Albanesi, which is a town, a mountain town in the province of Palermo, it's right behind the city, actually up in the mountains. Um, the people speak uh, late 15th century Albanian and they speak uh, Italian and as, as well they speak Italian, uh, Sicilian dialect. So, um, that's really the story of the Albanians. They were transformed into Albanian communities you know, much later. So, the Martorana is, um, as I said, was founded as an Orthodox Church in the, in the 12th century, but it is a Church of the Byzantine Rite, and the, the community identifies itself as Albanian-Italian. But they still celebrate the liturgy in, in part in Greek, in part in Albanian, and part in Italian.
2: And so what about the Ukrainian presence today?
0: Well, the Ukrainians, ever since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, people have been pouring into Italy from, southern, from uh, Eastern European countries. We have a very strong Romanian uh, presence here in Italy. Actually, now as a spoken language, Romanian has become the second language spoken in Italy. Wow. It used to be Arabic as a second language, but now that's long been superseded by a Romanian. Hmm. But people have also come from Russia, Ukraine, Poland, some from Bulgaria and Serbia, uh, and other Eastern European countries, as well as because of the European Union, there are people here from all over Europe. Palermo itself has become an international uh, community. Uh, It's predominantly Sicilian, of course, and and those who are not Sicilian are still a small minority. But there's a flavor of uh, of international culture here as well. Ukrainians, um, at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, started coming in. Though I would say probably most Ukrainians came here in the year two, in the 2000s. They mostly came as women working as uh, caregivers and um, house cleaners, et cetera. But that, that has changed. Men have come as well. Families have been established. Uh, people do all kinds of work. Um, there's a small but vigorous Ukrainian community here in Palermo. There is a Russian Orthodox church here in Palermo where some, some Ukrainians went to church until recently. There's, a, there's also a, a Romanian patriarchal church here, but our church is Ukrainian, but most of our people, the people who attend regularly are Romanian, some Italian, and a couple of Ukrainians. Church attendance in Ukrainian it has not been very high. Really? That's due to 70 years of, of communist oppression, of course.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question that brings us to the broader causes and... History around this current conflict, right? Because yes. after seventy years of state-sponsored secularization, I think people fail to realize that the church was uh, throughout the Soviet Union very, very much repressed for such a long time, and and it actually has spawned multiple internal conflicts. But in in leadership, those portions of the of Orthodoxy that uh, sort of stood underneath the Soviets, those that went underground, and and the like, but the bigger question, I think, is the the differences in history between Ukraine and Russia as we face it right now. Because there's all of these conversations about uh, Russians and Ukrainians as brethren coming from Putin and the uh, institutional leadership in Russia. And you know, we're we're learning now more people who are not students of history are learning about the idea that the identity of Russia really begins in Kiev. and uh, That's right. Can you kind of lay the table for a little bit of the history? What is the relationship?
0: Well, let's look at the history of it. Um, the Slavic peoples of Eastern Europe were uh, converted, at least the, the, the process of conversion to Christianity took place under St. Cyril Methodius, two brothers uh, who uh, invented the Glagolithic, what we would call the, the, uh, the Cyrillic alphabet, uh, in the in the ninth century, and uh, eventually uh, uh, priests and bishops came in uh, from uh, other parts of, the, of, of southern Europe. Uh, in the ninth century, uh, Prince Volodymyr, uh, who was the Grand Prince of Kiev, had the patriarch of Constantinople, or I should say, also, it was actually the emperor send uh, uh, Orthodox bishops and clergy into his country and uh, he converted his grandmother. Saint Olga was Orthodox and um, I'm sure that she had a certain amount of uh, influence in his life and he converted to uh, Christ and uh, was baptized Orthodox and the whole nation uh, overthrew paganism and and uh, either burned or threw into the the nightmare river uh, the statues of the pagan gods, and, they, and there was a mass conversion in Kiev, and uh, thousands of people were baptized in the river. And that was the beginning of, uh, of orthodoxy in uh, that part of the world. Now, the people called themselves Rus, and there are different theories as to the origin of that word. It may be actually a Viking word, because Rurik, the Viking who was asked to become uh, the prince of, uh, of the Slavik, the Rus people, was uh, from, from Scandinavia. And then uh, his descendants became the grand princes of the various uh, cities in what is now Ukraine. Um, what is called Russia now, which takes its name from Rus, became Orthodox much later. And uh, in fact, uh, the church's primate was Metropolitan of Kyiv. And then uh, in the late middle ages, the Tsar, Got the uh, patriarch of Constantinople to agree to transfer the primacy of the church from Kiev to Moscow. Moscow at that time was becoming a city; it had just been a little village year, uh, centuries previously. And uh, this is how the church ended up with its primacy in, in Moscow. But the Ukrainian church always kept its own identity, and they always looked to Kiev as as their uh, as their mother church. Uh, the Church of Kiev. Now, Westerners often say Kiev, but the proper pronunciation is Kiev, uh, is really the mother church. So when uh, the Soviet Union fell, uh, a, a great many Ukrainian Orthodox uh, decided that they were not going to be under Moscow anymore. That They were going to revert to their, uh, to their, their own roots and recognize uh, the, the patriarch, uh, rather the uh, metropolitan Kiev as their um, primate. This is the
2: beginning of the, the ecclesiastical issue. In recent years, and let's talk about the political separation because, as I understand it, and I'm I'm not a great student of Eastern European history, but I, I've done some work and and research. As I understand it, the political entity that is at one point was the Ukrainian Soviet Republic, and is is now the the borders of Ukraine for many many centuries. Portions of what is modern Ukraine were under the Habsburg dominance from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In the west of the country, the east under Russian dominance. It's only after the Second World War that a separate Ukrainian socialist republic is created. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Let's also mention that uh, the part of the north was under Polish domination. It was after the First World War that uh, Ukraine uh, broke away from Russia. And then it was uh, reinserted into uh, into Russia, into the Soviet Union in the 1920s. So, uh, but Ukrainians you see have had this longing for their own nation for a long time. They have their own language. They do not. Ukrainian is not the same as Russian. I'm speaking of the language here. Ukrainian, Belarusian, and Polish are very similar languages. Russian is a, a good deal different. Uh, they can often understand each other, and be, maybe even share each other's words. But they are different tongues. Ukrainians have always had their own culture, their own uh, poetry, their own leaders, their own historical heroes, quite different from uh, from Russian ones. So yes, Ukraine, as soon as it could, after the First World War, separated from uh, Russia, but then was forcibly integrated into uh, the Soviet Union after very few years. But that the, the idea of being a Ukrainian nation was never, uh, has never been abandoned. You know, the Russians during the Soviet times and even previously wanted people to speak only Russian. And Russian was taught in the schools. People spoke Russian in the schools and, and in public venues. It's only after the break with the with the after the breakup of the Soviet Union that Ukrainian was restored as a national language. And now school is conducted in Ukrainian and the kids are taught Ukrainian, though so many people also speak Russian especially in the east, which is close to Russia. So, but yes, Ukraine is, has its own unique culture. It's not the same as Russian culture. Similar, but not the same. And, and yes, if Russians say that Ukrainians are their brothers, to some extent that's true, but then, uh, then why are they attacking their own brothers? You know, That's a, another issue.
2: That's a question many of us are asking right now. Beyond the, the intricacies of the... Politics and inspiration behind this invasion. For our audience, one that is obviously concerned with Italian American issues, but also Italian issues, let's talk a little bit about the bilateral relationships between Italy and Ukraine and Italy and Russia. Because one of the things that I found um, very present in reporting, even here in the U.S., prior to the invasion, which uh, was obviously relatively well telegraphed one on the Russian part, was the idea that Italy was hesitant to join in on international sanctions before the invasion happened. There was uh, some conversation about Italy's energy relationship and uh, independent bilateral relations with Russia and Ukraine. What were the pre-existing relations prior to the invasion? Prior to the invasion, the primary issue was
0: economic. Think of this. Uh, Italians devour huge quantities of pasta and bread. And we do not grow enough wheat in Italy to meet those needs. Okay, most wheat used in Italy is imported from Ukraine and Russia, particularly Ukraine. And so there's, a, there's a, a strong financial link there too. What about Italy's relationship
2: to Russian energy?
0: You know, um, we can say that Germany gets a lot of its energy from Russia and other countries as well. To what extent Italy's energy comes from Russia, I'm not exactly sure, to be quite honest with you. There are a lot of debates about that on TV and in and, and the newspapers. I have not arrived at my own conclusion about that subject, but uh, a relationship with Russia is considered important. Primarily, I think because of, of uh, the importation of wheat and other products, but um, to what extent we rely on Russian energy, I'm not really sure because we do get energy from other sources as well and from our own sources.
2: How about the economic considerations around Russia and Ukraine as a market for Italian luxury goods? Because I think that there's uh, a sense that Italian products are desired around the world. I know that the bilateral yes. economic ties with China are are very substantial and you know, Russia and uh, obviously so many of these brands now are pulling back from doing business there is is that something that's considered in the popular conversation right now
0: i, I don't know that that's a major a major uh, factor in within the relationship between among our countries between our countries the italian uh, exported products like uh um versace etc are expensive products and people in ukraine don't have that kind of money I, when I was there, I noted how inexpensive for, for an Italian or for an American, for that matter, it would, it would be to stay in, in Kiev, because Kiev is uh, very inexpensive uh, from our point of view. But from their point of view, it's quite expensive because they make very low salaries. How they could possibly afford luxury products, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly a modern country. They have flat screen TVs and Internet and computers, etc. But these are pretty much standard everywhere now. Luxury objects that aren't really a necessity, such as uh, uh, Italian leather products, I think uh, are just not a major issue. People don't have that kind of money.
2: Well, if we put the economics aside, we also face an incredible humanitarian crisis right now. And well, this
0: is the, this is the main thing right now.
2: Yeah, we're talking about a country of how, how many millions living in Ukraine right now, prior to the invasion. I believe the it was it's forty four million. Don't hold me
0: to that, but I think that's the that was the correct that was the number of people, of which
2: three million have already fled. More than three West. million, more than, more than three, million, 3 million. million, and more and more are fleeing. How many have made their way to Italy?
0: There were pre, prior to the conflict, there were one hundred and fifty thousand Ukrainians in Italy. How many there are now? I don't know because people are just starting to arrive. Most have gone to the north, but some are coming here to Sicily as well. I've had quite a few phone calls and contacts, other contacts from local people who who want to uh, uh, offer rooms to uh, Ukrainian children or Ukrainian families, people who are, of course, sending, uh, as we do, uh, food and, and clothing to Ukraine. How many will end up here in Palermo and Sicily in general, I don't know. Most go to the north. Because that's where most of their people have settled, and so they look for their relatives. They go to stay with their relatives
2: if it's possible. But that's where you're going to find most Ukrainian people in the north. And what has the Italian government's uh, policy been like? At- oh, very open to receiving
0: uh, to receiving these migrants, well, migrants, these refugees, I should say. Very open to it. Uh, the churches are helping too. Uh, by the way, returning to the to what we were saying about economics, and I mentioned how Italy imports a lot of flour from, uh, uh, from Ukraine. We think of, it, of tomatoes as being a specifically Italian, um, well, it's not a specifically Italian dish, but I mean that uh, uh, Ital- being very important in Italian cuisine, especially Southern Italian cuisine. Do you know that probably, I wouldn't say most, but a, a good percentage of our tomatoes come from Ukraine? I didn't know that. No. Oh, yeah. Quite a bit of our tomato sauce is from Ukrainian tomatoes. That's
2: that's fascinating to think about. I I know the history of wheat coming from Ukraine because I know that there was a a point where the uh, indigenous Italian wheats began to suffer. And I know this from Pat, who uh, always conspicuous by his absence, a heartier strain of Ukrainian wheat was brought in uh, this is, I'm think, I think, in the 1830s and 40s, particularly in the South, and has become the predominant one, so much so that many of the indigenous varietals uh, are no longer grown, even when they are grown in Italy. So I, I, it's a deep and long history and one that both places have been self-aware of even from that time, this idea that we are eating the abundance of, of Ukraine in, in so much of our particularly wheat-heavy diet, as you mentioned. It's obvious that the relationship between the two peoples is one that will continue to evolve now with this refugee crisis. If the Italian government is supporting the presence of refugees, how are the Italian people reacting?
0: Well, obviously in favor. Italians are very compassionate people. Uh, They're very much in favor of of helping Ukraine. Though I don't think anybody wants to see uh, the war go beyond the borders of Ukraine. uh, There's certainly a great humanitarian interest in helping the people of Ukraine.
2: Do people on the street, does the average Italian person, are they talking about the idea that this war could stretch into the borders of NATO? What's the... Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. People are afraid. Yeah. They're afraid of a third world war. If it's a conventional war, I mean, all of Europe could be hit, you know. And uh, Putin has said that uh, a number of countries in, in Western Europe are, are, he considers to be unfriendly. Towards, uh, towards Russia because of their support for Ukraine. And he specifically mentioned Italy as being among those countries.
2: You know, there's been a lot of conversation about Putin's impact on Western European and American politics. And and there was a period before this uh, this invasion where he was, if not through direct participation and relationships, uh, which which existed in many cases, but also through his state-sponsored influence, he, he was growing his footprint in Western politics. And we see in Italy, uh, obviously there was a long relationship, uh, whether it be ideological or actually in any kind of political strategy, between he and uh, Matteo Salvini and the Lega Nord. Uh, I, I know it's a famous um, photo now or, or video clip of Salvini with a, a Putin T-shirt on uh, and his face emblazoned on it. How has the turn of events here and the how, how has that impacted italian politics well i, I sense first that- of
0: all um since since uh, the aggression against ukraine has started Matteo salvini has has supported uh, the ukrainian people i know Matteo salvini personally and uh he is obviously uh, very much against this war and very much against russian and the russian invasion into uh into ukraine um what attracted and many Italian people to, and many Western people, not just Italy, even in the States and even in Europe, all through Europe, to uh, some of Putin's uh, ideas and ways were that he, he was standing firm for uh, Western culture and civilization, European, let's call it European culture and civilization, and uh, express great reserves to uh, accepting uh, Muslim migrants into his country. He didn't want them and didn't accept them. They are not LGBTQ friendly. Uh, they, they, they want to uphold the traditional moral and social values and that attracts many people, okay? The, the, the other side of Putin, of course, is that he has become over the years uh, repressive and uh, silencing his opponents and uh, silencing journalists and politicians. And, and so, you know, like, uh, like many people, he has two sides. He has what some people would consider a positive side and what I think just about everybody would consider a negative side. So, uh, you know, politics uh, and social issues, etc., are all very complex and intertwined. It's, it's not easy to uh, to define everything in, uh, as either black or white. The the invasion has been condemned by all Italian politicians, whether they be on the right, in the center, or on the left. They've all condemned the invasion.
2: So what comes next for Italy in this situation? Is there a limit on refugees? Is there a, a, a process and a program for taking them in and integrating them? And do we foresee the... the Wave of Ukrainians that are coming out of the western portion of the country making the decision to permanently stay in Western Europe.
0: Statistically speaking, when people leave their country because of a war, 30% return and 70% remain in the countries to which they have migrated. That's a statistic fact. What will happen in this case, I don't know. Many Ukrainians who have left have expressed the desire to return. Once the conflict is over, hoping, of course, that, that Ukraine wins the conflict. What will actually happen? I don't know. Much of the infrastructure of the country has been destroyed by uh, the Russian invasion. So uh, time will tell uh, if people return or don't. It probably would require the return of most of its citizens in order to in order for the country to rebuild, because the destruction has been very thorough. I'm sure you're all the listeners are aware of what. Uh, I've all been watching television or aware of what's going on and we see uh, structures of all kinds being burned, being blown up, uh, destruction in the streets, destruction of buildings, uh, many people have been killed. This is going to require a huge reconstruction effort, huge. And it would require, in my opinion, the, the cooperation of Ukrainians returning to their country. How many will? How many will feel safe, to, safe enough to go back? How many will not have already started another life in, in the country which hosts them? I can't say. We, we don't know what's going to happen. I think our first, uh, our first and foremost desire is that the war stop or the Russians be pushed back, uh, thereby ending the war. How likely that is, I don't know. And, and the second and greatest concern, I think, of all the concerns there are, is that we don't get into a third world war. I want to emphasize that very much. No one wants that, except for a few warmongers and people who, are, who stand to make a lot of money off of the military industrial complex. This is a great concern. I think that we should remember that. I think that we should, I'm going to give you a political opinion here. I think that Americans, I'm speaking now as an American citizen, so I'm also that, I think that we should all contact our representatives and tell them we don't want a third world war be careful.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, it's unimaginable for people, particularly in a generation like mine, a little older, certainly for a younger generation, to think about a truly global conflict. I, I, I don't think it's one, I don't think it's a concept that has really crept into our consciousness in a very, very long time. And uh, it seems like we're going backwards to an awareness that we just haven't had. And uh, I think people are, are really struggling to well, to grasp it i know many john many people if i can interrupt you i would
0: i would say you're absolutely right about that i'd like to add that you know you were born long after i was i i was born in the in the, the post-war generation i'm a member of the post-war generation and um stories and films and documentaries about the second world war uh, were uh, daily material my father was uh, in the american army and uh, he was he involved in the d-day invasion he uh uh, disembarked on the beach of Normandy, not the, at the first in the first wave, as he told me, uh, well, if I had been in the first wave, you wouldn't be here. Because most of those men were killed. Yeah. Uh, you know, he fought uh, all through northern Europe and and he, the horror stories, the few horror stories he told me, because he didn't like to talk about it, actually remain deeply impressed in my mind. And we've had you know excellent films and documentaries since then, which, uh, uh, you know, have pointed out the horrors of war. But let's remember that even though many Americans died in that war, both in the Eastern theater and the Western and the European theater and the North African theater, I should say, all three of them, uh, America itself was not touched. Europeans, no, the older generation, it was remember the war, remember how horrible it was here. Italy was really knocked out. Oh, yeah. Here in Palermo, thousands of people died when the Anglo American. Uh, airplanes came in and and bombed the city they were trying to bomb the port and sink the not the German ships that were there but there were no smart bombs back then and you know people were killed many many people were killed you know this happened all over Italy this is why why in 1943 though actually started happening before that but people turned against Mussolini because they saw they not only saw the they're dead, coming home to be buried. But uh, I mean, they're dead, being brought back to be buried. But they saw the death and destruction all around them in their own country. So nobody here wants that. It took you know, it took it took at least twenty years just to to, to rebuild much of the infrastructure in be
2: Even longer. You hope that those people who those of us who do not have you know, I had a grandfather who was in the invasion of North Africa and and uh, eventually continental Europe and born in Italy and then returned only to fight his way through even including his hometown Uh, and I you know we've lost so many of that generation in our popular conversation and you wonder if those of us who didn't personally experience it but have that connection or that awareness can can help to make clear how precarious of a Situation this one is, and how easy it is to fall down that path because it's it's lost from popular memory. Uh, so, as someone who can share the identity of American, Italian, and Ukrainian, do you foresee, as this continues to evolve, Ukraine coming closer to its European identity? Uh, I, I I can't imagine. It evolving closer to a Russian identity, or this idea of it being sort of a a, a bridge between the two. What's the future of of Ukraine in, in that sense? Ukraine wants to be in NATO,
0: but that would that would constitute a direct threat in Putin's eyes to Russia. Um, there have been assurances that Ukraine will not be admitted to NATO, then others are talking about admitting Ukraine to NATO. Of course, it, it all depends on what happens. Yeah. And this is all just, uh, just talk until, until er- the air is cleared. Uh, to mention, I, before I answer your question, I want to mention this, that you know, for, for decades, it was the West against the Soviet Union and its satellite countries. Once communism fell and those countries broke away from uh, Moscow dominance, Russia found itself um, up against NATO countries. It had the buffer, which was composed of the Warsaw Pact countries. That buffer is gone. They don't want to see the neighbor, the neighboring countries like Belarus and, uh, and Ukraine and the Republic of Moldova. They don't want to see them in NATO because they would feel hemmed in. And I understand that. Um, the opportunity was lost. Years ago, uh, when Putin said to President Clinton, I believe it was in the year 2000, what would you think of, of Russia coming into NATO? And he got no response. He brought that up again on more than one occasion to succeeding presidents, and it went nowhere. I have this theory, I should say, that if NATO had worked towards including these Eastern European countries that don't form part of it, Perhaps there could have been a mutual, let's say, brotherhood, a mutual understanding created. Perhaps, you know, I'm giving here some my own opinions, I, you know, observing the political and social situation. I'm giving here just my own opinions. I haven't really discussed this with too many people, but the few I have talked about it with agree with me. That perhaps NATO could have been the, the umbrella organization which could have brought in the countries I've mentioned, and, um, and created a united Europe. Now, that didn't happen. That opportunity was lost. So we've got a situation of great conflict here in which Ukraine would like to be part of it, but should we admit Ukraine into NATO is another question that has to be thoroughly investigated after the war. Being part of the European Union, that's another matter. That's another matter. They might want to think twice about that. Being in the European Union is not all positive. I can tell you.
2: <laughs> we we see many many. I mean, prior to this, we, we certainly saw a a diminishing sense of pan-Europeanism politically uh, in in many of the countries in the union. Uh, well, there's good reason for that. It's a certainly a complicated union for sure. I oftentimes think back around you know the idea that in the Gulf War. There was opportunities to work with the states of the former Soviet Union and opportunities to enforce and encourage a, a broadening of that global order away from a, an American uh, hegemony. And uh, I, I can understand the sense of opportunity lost to integrate the, what, what what was becoming a very different Russia more closely into our global strategy. And uh, here we are today. You know, all of these different things that have happened in uh, In in Georgia and in Chechnya and in Crimea, and then ultimately the one that's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back is here. Uh, From a perspective as a a faith leader, what can our listeners do? You know, one of the things we've encountered is um, I think it's hard for people to see how to best support. Those who are suffering most, which are the people in Ukraine. I know, you know, we've had seen some programs come our way from Italy, from the Italian Foreign Ministry. And mm-hmm. uh, what's what's the best way, in your mind, at least that you're aware of, for people who do want to support those suffering in Ukraine to actually lend their support? Well,
0: I mean, obviously, the the best and easiest uh, for most people way to help Ukrainians is to donate food, clothing, and money through reputable reputable organizations, because people are hungry. People don't have money. They can't buy medicine. They need medicines as well, I should add. Uh, They need clothing, especially children's clothing. They need food. Many people are starving. Wow. Um, So I would say contact your local charitable organizations uh, through the churches. They seem to be the most active. Orthodox churches in the United States Roman Catholic churches and others, I'm sure are uh, also involved. So donate what you can you can donate. If you're going to donate online, check out thoroughly uh, the organization to which you are donating. I know that there's um, the Red Cross is doing very good work there. Okay, that that of course, is, is, is paramount right now. But also extremely important, I would say the most important thing to do on the spiritual level is to pray for Ukraine, pray for the people, pray that the leaders on all sides are enlightened enough to stop this war and to not let it expand. You know, the world is in great danger right now. We have to have faith in God to help us, to uh, to enlighten our leaders so the leaders do not make decisions which will counter. To humanity and to peace, uh, and to and to brotherhood. This is, I think, it's important that we make ourselves heard with the politicians. We help the people of Ukraine with our donations, and that we assail heaven with our prayers.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Your Eminence. Makes a point that I think gets lost in a semantic misuse of the idea of prayer because you know you go on any of these social media platforms and you see all these posts and flags and prayers for Ukraine and you know prayer for this and I wonder how many of the people that are taking a few seconds to post the phrase prayers for Ukraine are actually on their knees in a real good question communal conversation with God about this and I hope for those that do have a relationship with the divine, that they are praying at this moment for not just the people of Ukraine, but the people of the world, and, and like you say, for enlightenment, for leadership, because uh, it is a very precarious one. And uh, it is a situation that has clearly brought people to an awareness and a train of thought that has for a long time been been dormant, in uh, particularly in the Western world. So uh, you, I know your prayers are consistently there. and uh, Yes. For those in the audience who pray, I hope that they're doing the same thing. I hope so, too. Yeah, this has been very, very enlightening, and I appreciate you taking the time, with, especially with the time difference. It's always an exercise for us to coordinate uh, with the guests from Italy. So thank you so much for being here, and uh, I hope all of uh, these prayers uh, have the impact that we want them to.
0: Well, thank you, John, and thank you, Stephanie, and I
2: remind your listeners that
0: Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that we have to pray for peace. Amen. And work for it. And work for it.
2: And work for it. That's very true. Well, if you're out there, and uh, you are a person of prayer, we we hope and encourage you to pray for the resolution, uh, not not just the people suffering, but the resolution of this horrible conflict, and uh, we hope that you have found, as enlightening as we have, this conversation on a topic that is uh, very, very important, and very, very timely. So, We're very happy to have had this conversation. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.